0: Hey, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 10 of the Clarity Podcast. This podcast is all about providing clarity, insight, and encouragement for your life and mission. I am Aaron Santamire, and I will be your host. Each episode, I will be having transparent conversations with people who care about you and desire for you to be healthy, resilient, and confident in your life and as you pursue your mission. I know that one of the biggest roadblocks to health, resilience, and confidence is lack of clarity. I believe that the transparent conversations we will be having and the life stories we will be hearing will be invaluable for both you and I. Today, we have the phenomenal opportunity to sit down with Dick Brogdon. Dick Brogdon will be helping us focus on people care and how we invest in the spiritual lives of others. Dick is very insightful. Dick is very challenging. He's not going to just follow a norm. He's going to challenge you. He's going to stretch you a little bit in his thinking at the same time, Dick is probably, in my experience, um he's been to Madagascar a few times and I've gotten to see it's one thing to see somebody on the stage, it's one thing to see somebody in leadership, but it's another thing to travel into the countryside, it's another thing to be with someone in a different environment and to really see when they're put in into the crucible or your know, trying time, what comes out and what I've come to see from Dick is Dick loves Jesus. He loves him profoundly, he loves him intimately and Dick has very Christ-like character. So anyway, we've had a phenomenal time. Just a quick story with Dick and I. He came to Madagascar and we were flying. Um, anyway, the, we were going out there with Heli Mission and we were supposed to go out into the bush. And it was going to be a good time, but the weather was bad. And he had been here once or twice before. I pushed the pilot, which I'll never do again, and said, you know, I really want to go. We really want to go. He said, we can go, but it's not going to be a good trip. And But anyway, we went. And so we got there and the pilot was right when we got to the area. We were supposed to land. It was flooded. It out, we couldn't land, and we couldn't do anything, so we had to turn around. And we, as we were coming back, it was a time of a cyclone, you know, it was very windy, and you're in a helicopter and it kind of bobs around, bobs and weaves, and bobs and reefs. Where so we were flying. Lower and um, as we were flying, coming over one of the mountain ridges, it was like that helicopter. Somebody just decided it needed to go to the ground, and that thing just started falling. And things were flying around in the cabin. Well, I reached down to grab, and it—you know—you just grab the first thing you can grab. And anyway, there was two guys: one guy on one side of me, one guy on the other side, and Dick was on one side, and I ended up grabbing his leg. So anyway, he said he ended up writing me a haiku poem after that. That uh, anyway of the awkwardness of me touching his leg, but it was this the reality of the helicopter falling through the sky. So anyway, it was good to reconnect with Tick for this podcast and just to learn more and grow from his insight. It is a lengthier one. It is a longer one, but I will tell you this, it, it's worth it. It's valuable and you provide some experience and insight that are very valuable. So there's no time better than now to get started. So here we go. Greetings and welcome to the Clarity Podcast. We're so excited to have the phenomenal opportunity to sit down today with Dick Brogdon and begin to look at what important points on what it is as far as our abiding and devotional time and our, the time that we spend with Jesus. Many of you might know Dick, but Dick, would you mind sharing just a little bit about yourself for the listeners that might not know, know you as well? Sure. I'm a missionary
1: kid. I was born in Kenya, East Africa. I grew up there, went to boarding school at Rafale Academy. Then I went to North Central for college in Minneapolis. And right from there, 92, started Mauritania, one-year assignment, two-year assignment in Kenya, working with the Samburu people under the old MIT program. And then went to Northern Sudan from 1996 to about 2011. Then Egypt for six years till 2018. And now we've moved to Saudi Arabia. And we work with AGWM here in Saudi Arabia.
0: Exciting. Thank you. And you're married with a husband of one wife and two boys, correct? One wife,
1: two boys, yeah. I have a son, Luke, down at San Antonio. He's a junior in college and Zach's at North Central. He is a sophomore, and they both love Jesus, and we're thankful for that.
0: That is awesome. That is awesome. So... Well, Dick, well, let's jump right into the questions and the things that we would just like to talk about on caring for people and specifically caring for people in their spiritual lives. What is a learning experience, Dick, that you have had that has helped you provide clarity in investing in the spiritual life of people and people you lead and the spiritual life of of other people around you?
1: Probably the biggest lesson I've learned is the danger of living in the world of theory and not being a moral example for what you teach. I'll give an example of this from a more practical leadership perspective and then apply it to spiritual formation. So years ago now, when I was overseeing Live Dead in the Arab World, I was looking at the landscape and saw that we didn't have anyone in the pipeline for Saudi Arabia. And so like I often do with Jennifer, I went down to her in the kitchen and said, hey, Jen, what do you think about moving to Saudi Arabia? You know how we visit places and get a burden for it. And she kind of rolled her eyes because I say that all the time. But I went back to my office and I thought, if I did move to Saudi Arabia, what would I do? And I had an epiphany because as I began to kind of lay out what I wanted to do, if I was just a church planter again, I resented myself. So like Dick, the church planter, resented Dick, the strategic leader, because I didn't want to implement what I was asking other guys to do. So the realization was, if I'm not responsible for the consequences of implementing a decision, I don't make as good of a decision. If I sit up in a tower of theory and say, hey, we should do this, that, I hadn't lost passion, I hadn't lost vision, I hadn't lost track of good missiology, but just the nuances of practical living, had gotten away from me. Then I looked at my phone, in my top 50 contacts, I had hardly any lost people in it. And I thought, I'm telling people to work with the lost. I'm telling them to do this, that, and the other. I don't have many lost friends anymore. And I don't want to do what I'm telling other people to do. And it was part of our process to lead us to the ground in Saudi. Well, that's even more critical in spiritual formation. It is so dangerous. If we are telling people what to do in their prayer life or their fasting or their other disciplines, their Bible reading, lengths of time, depth, intimacy, if if we're just a talking head on that, if we're just dealing with theory If we are drawing on other people's experiences or something that we encountered in the past and we're not giving people fresh bread, it's incredibly dangerous, not only to them, but also to our own souls. So I think my primary lesson is the best thing that I need to do is live out what I teach and what I espouse. And I have to be authentic in that. If I'm not, I won't have moral authority. And I might say clever things or whatever, but there will be no real divine power there if I'm not living out. So I think in spiritual formation, a critical lesson in investing in other people, long before we open our mouths, we have to privately, secretly, quietly be living out everything that we encourage other people to live out. Otherwise, we become the worst type of Pharisee and just make others twice the sons of
0: hell that we are. Good deal. Dick, you talk about modeling that. And so you're modeling spiritual formation and spiritual disciplines in your personal life. Has that been a stepwise approach? Or did you just, I've heard in the past, you've talked about tithing, you know, tithing our time. Is that something you arrived at just one day you and Jen woke up and said, hey, we're going to spend three hours today abiding. How does that work in your life? Could you just give us a little bit about your journey?
1: Yeah, probably three critical people. There's more than that, but three critical things happened. One was Billy Burr. Some of you old veterans will remember him. He was one of our leaders here in Africa. And years ago, this was back, I think, in the late 80s or early 90s, he came up with something called ATOM, A-T-O-M, which Billy described as a tithe of meat. And his encouragement to us as young missionaries was, you know, it's great that you do the financial tithe, but why don't you give all of yourself as far as the tithe goes to the Lord, your thoughts, your intellect, your finances, your time. So that got me thinking way back as a young missionary. That had built on what my mom and dad had modeled for me, because every day of their life, you know, from eight o'clock to 10 o'clock in the morning in that Western Kenya sunshine, they'd take a cup of coffee and their Bible, and they wouldn't answer the gate or those old crank telephones we had in the day. And they would just give their primary time to Jesus. And I saw them give two, two and a half hours to the Lord, every day. They called it their 8 to 10. So they did two hours. And those are prime work hours. And you might question that, but they felt it was best to give Jesus of their primary energy. And my dad, he was the head of the mission for our org at the time. He was leading a Bible school. He planted churches. So I saw this connection to intentionally giving Jesus a lot of time, even as a busy leader, and the fruit that it bore on the backside. And then the third piece, I was at a big missions conference, interdenominational, sitting at a table with David Schenk, who also worked in East Africa amongst Somalis there in Eastleigh and in, in Somalia. And we had gone through all this methodology and all these big ideas. Then he just sat back quietly and he said, what concerns me is that in all of this, nobody's talking about abiding. And that was like a bomb went off in my spirit. So those kind of pieces coming together, what my parents had modeled for me, the challenge of one of our workers, Billy Burr, to give a tithe of me this kind of statesman within the body of Christ who'd worked 40 years amongst Somalis saying, there's a gap here in our broader understanding and praxis. They kind of converged. And so I didn't get there overnight, but it was a kind of a process of early mentoring and then saying, you know what? I want to live that. I want to live out experiencing the intimacy with Jesus that comes from extravagant time. And I want that to be the central core of what I do as a missionary. So began to implement that. And then Jennifer and I began to grow on that over the years. And we still battle at it, you know. Yeah. It's it's still.
0: No, for sure. And do you have any wisdom or insight? You know, I also had parents that modeled that. They modeled spiritual disciplines for us. And I don't think for me and my sisters, I don't think they were doing it for us to see, but it was just part of the rhythm of our life. And it was a part of rhythm of who they were. And it really was genuinely who they were. What wisdom or insight would you give? Maybe somebody they didn't come from a background, maybe that that was modeled for them. Would you, is there a way you would point them or direct them or insight you would have for somebody that maybe didn't have the model like you had in your parents?
1: Yeah, I think I kind of work through a progression of D's, and everybody's more familiar with the discipline. In order to spend a lot of time with Jesus, we know you have to create time in your schedule. We know something else has to go. You have to work through the different seasons of life. And so if you would start with discipline, discipline is appropriate. leads to desire and desire to delight. But there's another D before that, and that's what I call desperation. What I find is that we can't really discipline ourselves, nor can we disciple others in the disciplines if we're not desperate and if they're not desperate. So a starting point, if you haven't had someone model just the sheer discipline of it, because sometimes you see the external discipline, but you don't always see the desperation that drives that. I would say to that person, the starting point is desperation. And Discipline is sustained if you're desperate. If you're not desperate, discipline can be a little dry, formulaic, even hypocritical, you know, become more performance-oriented. But if in your core you have this longing for more of Jesus and more of the Holy Spirit and more intimacy and even, appropriately, more fruit in your ministry, if you're desperate for Jesus to break through in your context or in your Bible school or in the way that you serve or in your church planting, It's that desperation that gives you the fuel to be disciplined. And then that steadiness and discipline does eventually lead to desire. And you're not just grinding it out. You're like, man, I want to be with Jesus for extended periods today. And then from there, it leads into delight. So I would say, Aaron, if you haven't had a model for it, don't try and adopt the discipline first. I think it starts with this desperation for Jesus. And then your disciplines, of course, are necessary. And sometimes you just have to work through that. But start with desperation and then let the disciplines kind of gel and lead you towards desire and delight.
0: And the continent of Africa seems to help us in that desperation. You know, I remember when I got to Burkina, I. Not proud of it. Thought I was very independent. And I didn't realize until I got there that time of desperation, how dependent I was on Jesus just to make it through the day. And coming okay. from American culture, maybe I was, but I was not as acutely aware. But being put in that context in Burkina Faso, I think my dependence on Jesus to get me through the day led to what you're explaining is that desperation because I needed him just to get through the day. And I needed the Holy Spirit's guidance to get me through the day, which led to the disciplines and those things falling in place. But it was really, I think that crisis moment that I had to, I think God was speaking to me, but maybe I just wasn't listening. But when I came to a crisis moment in Burkina on the field, I had a decision to make, you know I mean? Was I going to be desperate. And was I going to follow the desperation and follow it to Jesus or you know try to continue to do things on my own, which was not working anyway. So. Right. so Dick, you are actively involved in discipling people towards Jesus, whether that is missionary workers, whether that is people that have not yet come to know Jesus. What helps you in providing clarity and discipling people towards an intimate relationship with Jesus?
1: I like to have a kind of feel for where people are. So two things. One is to hear them pray and to hear them talk about Jesus. I find it somewhat ironic that we are quite glib in every other thing. You know, we can talk politics or sports or missions, but when missionaries get together, we don't often just talk about Jesus and how sweet he is with one another. I don't know if we're embarrassed about that. So I like to ask him questions about Jesus and I like to hear them pray. So one of the ways I'll do this with young guys is I'll invite them into my own prayer life. I like to walk and pray. If I just sit in my office, I get distracted. So I'll go out every morning and walk for an hour. And I'll usually do the acrostic acts, you know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Sometimes I do Jim Bradford's, which is pray, praise, repent, ask, and yield. But I'll follow something and kind of do like 15 minutes on each. So I'll get an hour of prayer time. But I'll take these young missionaries with me And we'll just take turns praying back and forth, you know, so I'll pray for five minutes and they'll pray for five minutes and we'll work through one of those acrostics. But when I hear people pray, it gives me an insight into some of their passions, some of their longings, even some of their brokenness and some of their needs. And that helps me rather than just kind of preempting that and arbitrarily saying, this is where I think you need help. It gives me a little bit of fodder for reflection and also my own internal prayers for them. And to see where some of the gaps are, and then we can begin to address that. So I think the first thing is listening to people pray, listening to people talk about Jesus, getting a kind of a sense of where they are, and then working together on a roadmap for growth, whether that is in the visceral and emotional and relational side, or whether that is the more practical, pragmatic side. The second thing that I found very helpful is for those of us who are in control of our schedules, and I think we'll talk later in the podcast on others who are in institutions and they don't have as much control, but for those of us who control our schedules, to make time where abiding is possible. A couple examples. Whenever we do a mission meeting, we have child care start at 8 in the morning till 10 a.m. with no program. So parents with young kids can drop their kids off at childcare and have two hours Abiding. It's everyone's favorite part of the conference. Yeah. You know, because young parents can get some quiet time for those four or yeah. five days. In our businesses on the ground, we don't start our businesses until later in the day because we have control of that. We might make a little less money, might not be so busy, but we make time so that the priority for all of our people is to have time with the Lord. And even if that's in an evening culture, then we just adjust that and prorate that forward. So calendarizing times for abiding, whether we're at events or in the routine of normal life has been a big help to create the space for people to actually have time without other demands that we're putting on them to spend time with Jesus. And then also actually praying with them and listening to them talk about the Lord gives me some kind of sense of direction of where they are spiritually, which makes it a little bit easier to speak into their lives and, and to coach and lead them through some of their formation.
0: Dick, you brought that up, you mentioned about young families and the, you know, you do young families that eight to 10 window is joyous for them because they have that time to abide and spend. How do you see that in different seasons of life? I know for Heather and I, we were not the perfect parents, but honestly, there were some days when our kids were one and three and we had great kids, but some days it was just to have 10 minutes or 15 minutes was a win. You know, I mean, we're just trying to got to Madagascar. We were trying just to learn the culture, to get through the day. We were dependent on Jesus, but at that time it was to sit two hours. Maybe we just had not calendar our lives as well, but either Heather or I, it was a real struggle. What have you seen in your many years of service for young families? How this would play out, or some keys or some insights that you've gathered?
1: Yeah, thank you. That's a critical question. The the easy answer is Grace in the sense there is grace from God for seasons of life. And God understands when we have little children and for many young families, that's not possible to have one extended two-hour block. So if I start with the easy answer, I say we need to have grace for one another and grace for ourselves on the season of life and understand that. And then what we do in that grace is a couple of things. At least this is what helped for Jennifer and I. One is the principle of double dipping. So we kind of have to lay down the ideal of all I'm going to have is my Bible and worship music playing and nothing else. Sometimes the biting in that season is while you're standing at the sink doing dishes or folding laundry or following the kid around as he runs around in the park or in your outside yard, you know, so they're playing and you're praying or you're washing and you're praying. So to be comfortable with kind of a double dip there where Jesus, you know, my season of life, I don't have an extended block. But here I am changing this diaper and I'm going to commune with you as I change the diaper, as I watch my kid play, as I do dishes, whatever it might be, cooking, et cetera. There's a range of things. So that's the double dipping concept. The second thing that we did, we spent the money to hire a nanny. And the way that Jennifer got through those younger years, we had a nice little sweet Christian lady named Sarah. She came and watched the boys and Jennifer would do one of three things. Take a nap, go swimming or read her Bible. Yeah. And she didn't feel any guilt about that. You know, it yeah. carved out for her a couple hours on a daily basis where she could just get rejuvenated, whether physically, spiritually, or even emotionally. So I would encourage young families, we're pretty generously taken care of. And in the context where we live to have an ayah or to have someone come into the house and do childcare, it's not that expensive. Yeah, It's well worth it to spend the money so that young parents, the moms can go running or they can take a nap or whatever. So I would encourage you double dip and also spend some money to bring in some child care to your home and don't feel guilty about that. Take a nap, exercise, spend some time with Jesus. That's all under the blanket of grace. You know, yeah. sometimes even that's not possible. And if not, Jesus understands. The caution I think, Aaron, I would have is I wouldn't want us to have a double standard even as parents. For example. Most young parents still find time to eat. They still yeah. find time to exercise. They still find time for Facebook. They still find time for yeah. movies or whatever. It's true. And I just yeah. I want us to operate under grace without making excuses for ourselves. Yeah. Because I think if we're ruthlessly honest, we still find time, even with young kids, for the things that delight us and for the things that we enjoy. And the things that are necessary for breathing. And if we really believe that extravagant time with Jesus is as foundational to our spiritual life as food is to our physical life, we kind of find a way to do it. I don't want anyone listening to this to be under condemnation. So I do want to lead with grace. So let's not fall off the horse on the the other side either. And if we're finding time for all these other things. Yeah. Should we find time for Jesus somehow and no. balancing that out? You know, I realize it's balance.
0: No, it is. And I that resonates with me, to be very honest with you, because people frequently tell me how busy they are. But if you're spending two hours on Netflix every evening or two hours on Facebook, you add all that time up, it is a significant amount of time. And I really do believe what we input and those things I've never, and people might disagree with this, but nothing that I've ever watched on Netflix has ever helped me Become closer to Jesus in that sense. You know what I mean? And it's the inputs that I've had to be a lot more careful with on this side of the ocean because the things I'm putting in is what's coming out. And I do believe the enemy, he sees those things. And I just have to be a lot more intentional of the music I listen to, the things that I allow my eyes to see, the where I lie, allow my mind to dwell. One of the times I love the beginning of the year fasting, because I lay aside sports because the reality of it is I probably spend 30, 35 minutes listening to a sports podcast every day. I lay that aside because that's an input but the reality is my mind thinks about sports throughout the day but if i can lay that aside and the inputs are jesus and my love for him and my desire to grow and become more like him it's just amazing so i think it's a valid i appreciate your leading with grace and i think we also need to be honest and be people with integrity and say this is really how i'm spending my time and is that modeling what it is to truly love Jesus. And as you said, Jesus isn't in heaven with a checklist, with this stopwatch and timer adding it up the end of the day. That's, I think if we go that way, we've totally missed the relationship because none of us would want our wives to have a stopwatch or for us to have a stopwatch with your wife. It's natural because we love them. We love our kids. It's not a stopwatch relationship. But as you said in the beginning, it's desperation and desire to spend time with Jesus more and more each day. So thank you so much for that. As we look at the generations to come, one thing that I got to go to Egypt uh, about a year, year and a half ago with some brothers from um, Reunion and the youth and the next generation that were there at the training center was honestly eye-opening phenomenal. And what have you learned as you've been intentionally discipling and coaching and mentoring the other generations, maybe the younger generation, or maybe it's a generation that's older than yours. Is there any lessons that you have learned that you could share with us?
1: I appreciate the maxim that I learned from Eli Gotro and the Chi Alpha brothers. And Eli will talk often that responsibility is the miracle grow for leadership. In other words, we want to actually, by intention, empower people to fail and to fix their own mistakes. I don't mean that we want them to fail. But I think that we need to give people real responsibility earlier than we tend to give it. And then when something doesn't quite go right, restrain ourselves from jumping in and being the solution. Because a lot of maturity will actually come from making a mistake, experimenting with something, and then having to fix it. And I'm not referring to sins necessarily, but some leadership decisions or some interpersonal things or some cultural stuff. I think that we need to give people the freedom so that they can fail and then fix it. I have been very frustrated in my own development when I make a mistake and somebody would kind of intrude into that to fix it. I would have preferred the grace. All right, I didn't quite get that right, but now let let me fix it. Let me work through that process of growth. So we've been really intentional to trust them with responsibility early, which means we have to believe in the young before they believe in themselves. That's good. With deferred adolescence and some of the things going on in our culture, There isn't the same security like for our generation, Aaron, guys ahead of us. At 18, you're done. You leave home, you go to college, you pay your own bills, you launch out from there, you never look back. Well, our culture has changed and it has had a residual effect on confidence. So I think earlier on now, it's incumbent on us, real responsibility and give them enough space to make mistakes and to fix them, believe in them. And then that is so empowering when young people feel that we're for them and we don't smack them when they get it wrong, but we allow them to process through that and grow. I think that, at least we've seen in our own personal experience, when a young person is believed in and trusted, they rise to the level of your expectation. And if you don't trust them, they're gonna sink down to that level. So some of that starts with us. What do we see in them? To call it out, to believe in them, to let them feel our trust. And that trust is, I think, best certified and cemented when something doesn't go right, but we still trust them and we allow them to process through the consequences and the resolution of it. Then they really take off in their own maturity. So those are some of the things that we try and be intentional about.
0: The idea that trustworthy behavior leads to trust. Are there certain areas is your coaching and leading and discipling, maybe the younger generation that that you're looking for? Are there areas that you said allow them to fail and not work? Are there how do you discern that, Dick, if somebody is maybe on a team and they're continually struggling, maybe in a, a scenario, do you have the same tolerance in that? Are you quicker to come in versus maybe someone's making a cultural decisions? How do you balance that, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Because I guess for me personally, if I see somebody, their actions are not necessarily trustworthy, it'd be hard for me to let them learn and figure that out on their own. What have you learned in those kind of situations?
1: Yeah, I think moral things and character things would be a little different. So we demand integrity. We don't demand that people are sinless. So if we have a young person, we would insist as a character issue that they're a person of integrity. So that means transparency. That means confession. That means submission. That means teachable spirit. You know, there's a range of things. And if those are not in place, we deal with that very quickly. So we'll jump on attitude or lack of integrity very, very quickly and have almost no tolerance for that. If those things are in place, then the process is to give them a little responsibility and see how they do on that and give evaluation and feedback and then a greater responsibility. So I'll use an example. One of our great team leaders right now is Ted Burnett with his wife Bethany. When they first came to us, they were very green, but On the integrity piece, the character piece, they were superb. So we gave them little responsibility. Stock the kitchen at the team flat. You know, it was as simple as that. They did it with brilliance. So then we added a little bit more. Okay, you book the team flat for visitors. They did that with excellence. So then went through a series of these things. And then I said, man, they've done all these little things so good. I came in contact with some Muslim seekers that wanted to be discipled. I reached past some other people who had a little more experience, and I gave those seekers to Ted and Beth, and I walked with them, and Ted and Beth walked with those seekers and started the first little house church for our team Wow! and did it with excellence, and they grew and grew and grew and grew, and everything I gave them, you know, we still walk with them and give feedback, but it started real small. It started with crackers, yeah. and then it grew into teaching Christ to a house church of about a half dozen Muslims. And then they've continued to expand and now they're leading a team and seeing great fruit. But I think that's kind of the principle, a very high expectation on integrity. You don't have to be perfect, but you have to have character. And if you don't, we'll jump on that early and often. Okay. You know, no tolerance for lack of character or lack of integrity. But if that character piece is there, little responsibility leads to greater responsibility, a coaching feedback loop, and then they grow through that. That's good. And- On the character, I don't mean we kill people. I mean, we don't allow things to grow so that they fester internally or communally. We would have come to Jesus meetings, we call them, and say, here's what we see. Here's the issue. This is a problem. And here's some ways to address it. And we're going to hold you accountable to that. And if people respond to that, then well and good. We go forward in it.
0: When you talk, you said there's coming to Jesus meetings. Do you approach those differently? I know it's individual. But do you approach those differently maybe, Dick, if somebody who is maybe 10 years your senior versus maybe 10 years your junior, or do you take the same framework into both of those relationships? How do you navigate those? Because we do see people that are older than us coming to the field. How do you, and then also younger, how do you balance those two situations?
1: Absolutely. I do think there has to be a substantial difference. And I made mistakes on this earlier in my career and, and need to guard against it even now. Earlier on, I was too authoritative with those who are older than me in life. It was actually a weaker form of leadership. A weaker form of leadership is you treat everyone the same. I think a more robust form of leadership is you treat everyone different according to the season of life. So the principles need to be the same, but application needs to vary according to the person. So I do think as we're dealing with those who are older than us, we're much less directive and approach it much more from a posture of questioning. So with a younger person, I would be more like, this is wrong, and this is why it's wrong. With an older person, I'd be, help me understand. This is what happened. Help me understand what you were processing, uh, because I see a little bit of attention here, and I'd like to understand it from you and walk with you through it. So it's a totally different posture. It's not that I'm yielding my authority or responsibility with those that are older, but like the Bible says, I think of my dad. And if it was my dad that I had a concern of, how would I speak to my dad about it? Yeah, might feel a little corny, but I try and visualize my dad in that moment and say, if I was a little concerned with my father,
0: how would I come to that conversation? Yeah, for sure. That's valuable. I think it's valuable for all of us. Is that been a step? You talked about a more robust style of leadership, moving from authoritarian to a more robust. Is that been a progression, Dick, or was there a-, a moment that the Holy Spirit spoke to you and that became evident? Or can you just unpack that a little bit for us?
1: Sure. That was a lesson forged in pain. That was a lesson when I had some either peers or those a little older than me in life that joined our teams, and I didn't lead them well, and so they decided to leave our teams or to confront some things in me. And actually, it was painful, but very, very helpful. And I realized, wow, I did not lead this well, nor did I lead them appropriately. So it was actually the pain of failing some others and them moving on from our team that kind of slapped me awake and say, wow, I've got to approach this differently. So yeah, it's painful, but I'm grateful for the process.
0: No, for sure. For sure. When we look at the areas of spiritual disciplines, is there a certain area now that you're working and God is working on you, you're specifically focused on? And why do you think we just came, you and I were both involved in Cornerstone's time of fasting and prayer. Why do you think today, 2020, why is fasting and prayer, it's what Jesus did, but why is it so important to the life of the church and to the life of missionary workers?
1: Yeah, if I take that second part of the question first, I think why fasting and prayer are so important is it keeps us humble. Because what happens is, like you mentioned in Burkina Faso, we start when we're new, really desperate, kind of naturally because we're overwhelmed. If we're not careful over time as we develop some ministry skills and language and contextual favor and things, we can fall into the air of praying less when things are fruitful. We actually need to pray more. The more successful we are in ministry, We shouldn't be praying less because if we're praying less, it means we're a little more self reliant, which means we're a little less humble, which means we're not really depending on the Holy Spirit. We're kind of slipping without noticing it back into our own natural strengths. And that's a disaster down the road. So I think the beauty of prayer and fasting is number one, it reminds us that we really can't do anything without Jesus, even though it feels for a moment that we can. And secondly, I think we look at fasting so often as giving something up. And I think we should look at it as gaining. I think we should remember that fasting is really feasting, that there is this giving up of something good in order to get something better, to spend time with Jesus. And if you're like me, my fasting usually slides into dieting, you know, where I'm skipping food, but I'm not actually feasting on the Lord. So if we can keep that perspective, wow, I'm actually gaining something here. I'm giving up something good in order to gain something greater. So I think it's critical in two regards, prayer and fasting. Number one, it keeps us humble, keeps us lowly. And number two, it keeps us feasting if we orient ourselves right on that positive. And that goes to the first part of your question as far as an area that I'm growing in. I think as we mature, we realize that as wonderful, and as important as it is to give Jesus the bad things, to put things on the altar that whether it's sin or just busy stuff that doesn't honor him, what's really beautiful is to give him good things. Hmm. And that some of the most precious things that we give Jesus are good things. So you reference sports. And I resonate with that because coming into this year, I was praying, I was saying, Lord, what do you want? What's anything you want? You can have it. And I would pray through things. And what came to my mind was sports and chai. And I was like, oh, no, surely not that. (laughs) Whatever sin you want, whatever indulgence you want, whatever laziness you want, whatever stubbornness, you can have that. Lord, I'll put that altar. And what came to my mind was chai and sports. So in the morning, I love a cup of chai. Four o'clock, you know, British school, I love a cup of chai. And I also like to look at sports news every day like you did. But the Holy Spirit just kept coming back to me. Do you love me enough to give give me stuff you love? Yeah. Not just give me, you know, chains and bondages, but can you give me something you love? So I was like, oh, okay, Jesus. So this year, I'm giving up sports news and chai, sugar, yeah. and caffeine. And I love those things. And they're not necessarily bad. Right. But what it was as I'm growing in this is, okay, Jesus, I'm going to give you something I really love
0: Yeah. to get That's something good. better. That's good.
1: So that to me is kind of the heart of fasting. I'm going to give something good up so I can feast on you. And I still miss my chai and my sports, but there is a sweetness when I feel those kind of longings. I'm like, Jesus, this is for you. I love you. And it's helping me grow with him.
0: I love my sports too, but I realized um, t- through the time of prayer and fasting is the team won or lost and they really didn't even care that I, was, I wasn't I was paying attention. <laughs> so it's a humbling thing. But I told Heather, I said, you know, they don't care that I'm rooting for the team or not. And it all worked right. out. And it only actually took like two minutes to go through all the scores to see all the scores versus I probably have spent Who knows how long watching the games and whatever. So it was uh, just interesting to see um, how important we are not when it comes to the life of those things. So, in this season of your life, you mentioned seasons of life, and I've mentioned that too. Right now, what is your understanding of the Holy Spirit and what He's doing in your life in this season and how the Holy Spirit needs to be living and active in our daily life?
1: One of my favorite books is St. John of the Cross. He writes about the dark night of the soul and in that book, he's got this really important concept about what he calls the passive work of the Holy Spirit. And what he means by that is the Holy Spirit's at work even when we don't feel Him. Hmm. In fact, the Holy Spirit's at work especially when we don't feel Him. And one thing that I'm growing with, you know, I love the spine tingling, hair raising, powerful sense of the presence of the Lord. You know, that's sweet. Yeah. When He's so real and he illuminates the scripture or through a worship song. We cry because something has been made concrete to us. I was reading John Owen this morning on the glory of Christ and something about substitutionary atonement that's penal was just so precious. I had to go read it to Jennifer. So we like those moments, but that's not my norm. Yeah. Normal is daily living, going through routines and meetings and emails and conversations and witnessing and discipleship. And I don't have the fuzzy wuzzies. You know, I don't have that spine tingling excitement, but realizing and being thankful that even in those moments, the Holy Spirit is working yeah. and he's shaping and he's leading. So that's on one side of the spectrum to be grateful that in dry times. So it's not just routine times, but even in dry times, you know, Even when you're reading the Bible and praying and the heavens are like brass and you're putting the time in, but you're not really feeling the intimacy, even then Jesus is shaping and forming or in relational conflict, which is the bane of all of us as missionaries. You know, we can deal with police and we can deal with customs and we can deal even to a degree with cultural things, but it's relational conflict with the national church or relational conflict with our colleagues that we churn and stew about and just get all torn up about even in those moments, the Holy Spirit is working, even when it feels everything is awry. So, appreciating that more and, and maybe taking a step back and saying, when things are boring, when things are rough, the Holy Spirit's still working, even though I don't feel it.
0: Yeah. The second
1: word. thing, which is quite different but complementary, I have to pray in the Holy Spirit now more than I ever have in my life. Hmm. Part of that's living in Saudi and the extremities of the resistance here. But part of it is just, the nature of what we do and realizing, wow, I can't just pray in in tongues for five minutes in my morning devotion. I need relief from my own mind. And I need relief from just the constant pressure. And I need to pray with my spirit. And so I pray now in the spirit more than I ever have. And that's also helping me as I interact with the spirit. But I don't know what to do. It just helps me to pray in the spirit
0: good deal. What does that look like, Dick? You said, you know, when you need escape from your own mind or the pressures, is that something you begin to sense in your spirit? And then you separate, is that you pray in tongues wherever you're at? Or practically, how does that look? Maybe for somebody that's in the same situation that you are, that they resonate when you said, I need to escape from my own mind, or I got the pressures of the repression of the area I'm living in. And you said that praying in the spirit has been a spring of new water, fresh living water for you in those times. What does that practically look like? for you
1: sure so on the indicator side when I start replaying conversations in my own head over and over again Omar Byler says we shouldn't give people free rent in our heads but we do that so often you know we're in a situation and before we go into it we play out these scenarios if he says this I'll say that and then we're done and we think oh man I should have said that and you know in our flesh we come up with the zinger like two hours later probably good we didn't think of it in the moment you know exactly but an indicator to me that I'm not dealing with it healthy is if I overthink the conversation on the front end and then over hash it on the back end. I'm not saying we shouldn't be prepared for things, but that tells me something's awry in my spirit and I need to let go of it. So when I catch myself replaying conversations or there's letting guys have too much space in my head, then I say, all right, I'm not going to try and think my way out of this. There's maybe not a logical way forward or at least a natural way that I can see. I'm going to pray my way forward, and I'm going to pray in the Spirit and just let the Holy Spirit calm me down and relieve that pressure and take away that anxiety. So what does it look like practically? On my morning walk, I'll do it, and then we'll try and do it in the evening as well for some times, but then not necessarily out loud, but if I'm in a conversation or in the car, just as the Lord prompts me, just to pray a little bit in the Spirit as I go. So kind of bookends morning and evening, yeah. and then little sporadic times as I'm prompted through the
0: day. You do. Dick, what have you found? You mentioned that's some extravagant time in the morning and then in the evening. What if one of the listeners that's listening and says, you know what? I really want to spend my extravagant time with Jesus in the evening or in the morning. Maybe the cultural situation they live in. That was one thing when I went to Egypt, I was surprised. Cairo, it's alive, man. For me, you know I'm a missionary some nine o'clock's like late and so we were out some in the evenings very late it just stayed alive a lot longer. You've mentioned the morning. do you think there's some flexibility or why do you think and what has God led you to the morning being the most important? I guess is my question
1: Yeah I do think that mornings are important. I don't think that you have to do two two and a half hours in the morning because as we refer to, sometimes other institutional demands, are required of us, you know, that we can't control. Having said that, even for those who have busy schedules, late nights and early mornings, I still think that the Bible is quite clear. It is so repetitive about early will I seek you. Hmm. There's verse upon verse upon verse. And there's something I think important about starting the day by committing yourself and the works of your hands to the Lord. So I would say for those who are in a situation where they have to They don't have the luxury of an extended time in the morning. That's fine. But at least start the day with the Lord for whatever time you can. If that's 10 minutes or a half hour or an hour or something, start the day with Jesus. Commit yourself and the work of that day unto him. Start the day with prayer. Start the day with scripture. And to whatever length you can with your physical situation, your family situation, and your ministry situation. And then Maybe augment that. I've had some friends who kind of do it in two pieces. They'll do a morning section just to consecrate the day to the Lord and then the bulk of it in the evening. And I think that's wonderful. I have other friends that will do it in thirds. They will do like maybe a half hour in the morning and a half hour over lunch and a half hour in the evening. So I think there is grace on that as well. But I don't think, again, starting with grace but not getting away from principle, I think there is something valid about consecrating the day in the morning to the Lord yeah. at whatever level you can work that in your schedule.
0: Yeah. That's one thing my wife gives me a little hard time about it because I get a lot of calls about medical stuff, but I've moved my phone. I now keep my phone in my office because it was a natural tendency when I would first in the morning, I had great intentions before my feet ever hit the floor to spend a few minutes just praying, dedicating my hands, my feet, my mind, my mouth, my word, all day of those things to Jesus before my feet hit the floor. But I found that if my phone was there, it was hard because I would reach... For that phone before i would reach for anything right i'm not saying it's a bad thing but i do think the way you said you shared how we begin our day i do think sets a trajectory on how we're going to go throughout our day and my phone is normally responding to somebody else it's not responding to jesus so when i pick up my phone i'm not responding to jesus on my phone or asking him to come i'm normally responding to somebody that needs something from me or a problem or those type things and it sets my mind in motion that I'm already trying to figure out solutions for problems that I've not actually invited Jesus into my day because I need him. And so that was just one thing that we had to move. And it has its plus and minuses, but I think the pluses far outweigh the minuses. And if people need to get hold of me, I guess they can call my wife and she doesn't keep her phone away. But for me personally, I needed that because- I just became very reactionary in my day. And you pointed out earlier, I was trying to logically solve problems the way with Aaron's insight and wisdom, which is very limited, but without inviting Jesus into my day and the importance of that in the process. So I do agree with you that we need the importance of grace, but I do believe the way we begin our day does set a trajectory on how we go forward. And what has been your experience? I know you do a lot of study, and I think I've heard you share before that a lot of church fathers, that's the way they began their day, or the missionaries that have had, that have seen God do great things, they began their day in that way. Is that still a conviction that you have, Dick, or have you found any outliers to that principle in theory or your research?
1: No, it is. And I'm sure there are outliers. I did intentionally in my research try and find them. Yeah. Interestingly, I couldn't. As I looked at through history, at least through the last 300 years specifically, the Hudson Taylors and Ed and Iram Judsons and the CT Studs and the Livingstons, and you go through the Trashers and the Trotters and the Cambonis and the Gardeners and Thorntons, and I can't find exceptions. Yeah. There probably are out right. there, but almost inevitably Men and women of God through the centuries have arisen early and prayed. Now, I'm not saying they do all their praying there, but they have started. The principle, I think it's important, Aaron, like you said, we get the principle. The principle is we start the day with the Lord. Calvin Olson, AGW Missionary of Bangladesh in heaven now, wonderful man. He used to just gently kind of pound away Bible before breakfast, Yeah, Bible before breakfast. And his point was meet with the Lord first, set the day there. And then augment that as you go through the day. So, yes, are there exceptions? There always are. Right. Certain contexts when we'll need to adjust. But the biblical principle is we start the day with the Lord yeah. and then we commune with Him all day long.
0: Yeah. I think you've pointed out, Dick, I think we can't live in those exceptions. And a lot of times we use exceptions to explain way, our situation. And there are, and so I think they can add some, but I don't think we can allow exceptions to confound or confuse us. You know, in medicine, it's the confounders are when you do a research study, basically, you already have your what you think the way it's going to go. And so that's the way you put the study in place to arrive at the point you'd already decided. And I think sometimes when we look for exceptions, we've already decided and we're going to look for the solution, kind of like preaching a sermon and saying, God gave me an idea. Now, let me go to the text and try to find some biblical, basis to support yeah. my theory. And I think we do need to watch. And as you said, we're people of grace and to hold on to the principles and not explain away the principles and look for exceptions to justify. So that's probably, what is it? Change bias or control bias? One of those two. And anyway, sure, there's probably a word for it. So accountability, if we got a few minutes left, I know I'm taking a lot of your time, but I do value your insight. I've heard you share about accountability in the past and it's challenged me to be more accountable to others what are you learning and growing as far as holding each other accountable to biblical standards? Is accountability important? Do you still think it's important? And how does that play out in different areas and different seasons of our life?
1: Yeah, I do actually think it's critically important just because the heart is deceptive above all else. And so I need somebody eyeball to eyeball. I do some stuff online, you know, Skype with friends that are far, but it doesn't replace the face-to-face thing. So I try even If I'm not wherever I am, and I've done this in Saudi, I now meet once a week with three other guys and we pray. I didn't know them from Adam, but I just knew I needed to meet regularly with men and pray. I do think a couple of key concepts. One would be that there has to be real mutual submission. I don't think accountability in this sense, when we're talking about purity and attitudes and marriage, I don't think it usually works well if there's a power distance. I think there has to be an equality of input where I can speak frankly to someone else and they can speak frankly to me without some of these positional confusions. You know, So I'm not saying you don't have people of different status, but when you're in that accountability group, there's gotta be check your title at the door and raw, real, mutual submission to one another, a plurality there, not one dominant figure. I think we have to come in with that kind of humility. Within that, then I learned this from Glenn Smith, We have to progressively move confession within that accountability away from sin through vulnerability and into praise. Hmm. So Glenn got this from some other friends of his, but if you think of three inner circles and the, the one in the middle is red, that's sin. What we tend to do with accountability and confession is, oh, pray for me, brothers. I messed up and here's what I did. Now, there is a place for that. Better than that, next circle out yellow vulnerability better than falling into sin and you kind of become a almost like a group atonement thing oh sorry i have the same struggle yeah let's try and go longer this time without losing your temper whatever it is you know right. so rather than almost saying hey it's not a big problem we're all falling we want to try and move our confession and accountability out to vulnerability that would be brothers pray for me, I'm feeling vulnerable towards lust, or I'm feeling vulnerable towards the critical spirit. I haven't gone there yet, but I am feeling vulnerable. So that's better than having said, I messed up, pray for me. But even better than that, confession accountability is a green zone, which is, brothers, pray with me and rejoice with me. I'm healthy. My relationship yeah. with my wife is right. My ma- mind is good. So what we don't want accountability to devolve into is like a mutual pity party. Oh yeah, we're all broken. We're all sinful. Sorry that you messed up. Try and do better. That's like the lowest level. What we really want to encourage one another is let's grow and mature our confession and accountability out to, hey, I'm vulnerable here before we get to sin. And even better as the Lord keeps us that we're walking in grace and truth and liberty. I'm not saying that we're sinless. There are times we're all gonna cross lines and we're gonna just have to bring that into the light and repent. And deal with that. But let's not live there. Let's live out in the green and where we are vulnerable, bring that into the light early on. So we don't have to be dealing with red stuff, with sin stuff. So that I think has been helpful for me too, because early on in my accountability, I just, with my brothers, we just kind of dealt with red. And it's helped me to think about yellow vulnerability and green health and to live as much as we can in the green. And as soon as we cross the line into the yellow, even that's where technology has helped me. Like if I'm just dealing with something, a temper or frustrated with my wife or a temptation, if I'll just send a WhatsApp to my accountability group, brothers pray for me, just that little text. Yeah, it's brought it into the light and it helps me back away from that danger zone. So face to face is best. Technology can supplement, but let's move accountability as we mature from just dealing with sin to dealing with vulnerability, and then also rejoicing in health.
0: Dick, you brought out some very good points. And I think if we can just go a little deeper, you just arrived in Saudi Arabia. How did you go about finding people to meet with? Say that's a new missionary that gets to, I don't know, we'll say Burkina Faso, they get there and they want that accountability. How do they go about that? And then another question is, would be, say you start itineration, your own itineration, you had an accountability in Burkina Faso, now you're home on itineration. How does that carry over? Because you said the face-to-face is important. How do you deal with those transitions? Because you travel a lot and how do you remain, have some consistencies, but also realize that the lives that we lead, there's a lot of variance in it.
1: I think we make a decision that vulnerability precedes relationship. Kind of how we're wired is, let me know somebody, trust him first, and then be transparent. And I had to make a clinical decision, and Jen's had to do the same thing. I'm going to be transparent first, and we'll work towards relationship and trust. So what I did here in Saudi Arabia, which I think is good for all of us in new locations, the first month, I just made the rounds of every worker that was here, every expatriate leader, Pakistani, Filipino that I could find. And I said, Hey, could I have a meal? I'll treat you to a meal. And I just asked him questions. And I was figuring out ministry stuff too. You know, Who's here? What are they doing? How can I add value? How can I not compete a problem? So that was the general motivation. But in that, I was trolling for an accountability partner. So I had a bunch of meals and I met a lot of people. And I think it was on week two, there's one guy that I said, I think this could work with, you know? So I said, John Mark, his name, I would like to meet with you every week and pray. Would you be yeah. open to that? And, and I said, I'd like us to pray about personal things, not just ministry things. And he's a leader and a, he's been here a while. He said, yes, he invited two other guys. And so it, it was that blunt and it was that unsmooth. You know, yeah. Yeah. I just made the rounds early on to meet people. I picked one of them and I asked. I said, I know we don't know one another. I need someone to pray and hold me accountable and be willing. And we just started. And, you know, you take some risk and you put some stuff out there. But then what I find is people respond to that. Yeah. When we share victories or share triumphs, we kind of build walls. But when we share vulnerabilities, we build yeah. bridges. Yeah. And when I opened up and shared in the first meeting, then one of the brothers, bam, he took it and went with some sin he was dealing with. And so that was beautiful in that. Then on the furlough question, like near a new place, I have in my Bible... A list of 10 things here that I'm asking the Lord to help me on. So when I got, I just finished a furlough. I took that list and I went to the pastor, one of the pastors on staff of the church that we kind of base out of. Jennifer was there more than me because I traveled every week, but sometimes, you know, midweek we do stuff. I say, Brother, I'm new in town. Here's some things I'm asking the Lord to help me with. I'd like you to hold me accountable. Can we meet and we'll just pray about this? And so then we'd go on prayer walks and we'd talk. And my point is this you take the initiative. You be vulnerable before you have relationship and people will respond to your vulnerability. Could you get burned? Yes, you can. But to me, the risk is worth it just to bring things into the light. And I find that for the most part, the Lord will protect that and it will be helpful
0: to you. You have some of the same accountability partners, not obviously face to face, but do you have some people that you stay accountable to wherever you're at in the world? There's some consistencies in there. I do. Okay. I do.
1: So I've got some lifelong friends. One of them's in Tunis, Jack Wilson. Yeah. And he's not a, an official accountability partner, but he's a life accountability partner. We grew okay. up together. We have the same vision. We know the Lord in the same way. And so, yeah, very often we'll just chat or text or... Good deal. And that's super helpful. So I encourage that as well. It doesn't replace having someone face-to-face, I think, in context. That's healthy as well. to do. Okay. Locally grounded, yeah. but it's certainly a joy. I have that as well.
0: Good deal. And as you shared, you know, that's why we begin the podcast with a challenge or an area you're working through. Because when I listen to podcasts, if somebody begins and tells me how great they are, it makes me think, well, I don't even know how I identify with you because you're great and I'm not great. But I do think you're right. It does. When we begin with our vulnerabilities and the areas of working, it allows people to see that, hey, that, um, God's working on us too. And we can identify titles. I've never found titles to bring people together. They always divide. And I think when people hear somebody talk about themselves and how great they are, that's a title and it divides people. It doesn't bring people together. But I do think our vulnerabilities and our transparency does bring us together. Dick. Wim, with this last question, what's an area that you're excited about that you see that God's doing and will be a win, an area that God is working and When you get up in the morning, it puts joy and hope in your heart and your mind.
1: Well, I can answer that both personally and maybe corporately. At the personal level, it was at Together 19, I think. I was walking down a hallway with my two sons. One of them's 21, one of them's 20. They're big strapping lads now, and they both love Jesus. And I don't think I had a prouder moment in my life. Nobody was there, you know, but I was just like, my sons are grown up and yeah. they love Jesus. They're not perfect. They're working through some normal struggles. At night, when they're home from college, we gather together for family altar and we like, since they were little to do it in our bedroom, we'll, we'll all kneel around the bed, all four of us. And what's kind of fun now that I really enjoy is now that Jennifer, and I are a bit older, that evening prayer is not really long. You know, we yeah. pray a little bit, but we want to go to sleep or we want to read in bed or something. So we pray our little short prayers. Then the boys start praying and they're like, ah, and they're praying and fervent and crying before the Lord. And on one hand, Jennifer and I are enjoying it. and the other hand, we're like, I hope they yeah. wrap this up soon. We want yeah. to go to bed. So as we talk about spiritual formation and as we talk about the transfer to younger leaders, It's kind of a picture for me, what God wants to do, I think, broader. So I'm seeing it in my sons. We had to force them to do family altar when they were four and five. Now we're hoping they wrap it up in time so we can go to sleep as they just pray in tongues and pray to the Lord. And that's such a beautiful, so it reminds me of John. I have no greater joy than my children walk in the truth. So it gives me hope for what we're doing in Africa and around the world. We are making disciples, and we are trying to plant churches. And I know in the African context, we want one within, you know, reachable distance of every inhabitant of the continent. And the joy that is ahead of us, if we are faithful in our own spiritual formation, and then passing that on, there's incomparable joy waiting for us as we see those that we've invested surpass us and lead us spiritually as those partnerships evolve and rotate. So that's really exciting. And I See a glimpse of it, in my boys, and I pray for that in our ministry, whether that's here in the Arabian Peninsula or on the African continent. And I think for anybody who's listening to this podcast, you'll get there. Yeah. You'll get there. There'll be tears, there'll be heartache, there'll be setbacks, there'll be three steps forward and four steps back. But if we are faithful, we are going to see disciples that surpass us in their fervency, spirituality, intimacy, their mission, and we will just rejoice in that. So there's great joy ahead of us if we'll just hold to the course. That's so exciting.
0: Dick, would you pray for our listeners, the things that we've talked about and shared with today that will be seated in our heart, that the Holy Spirit will guide and direct us, and the joy, maybe there's somebody listening today, that seems like a very distant future for, you know, it seems a long way off. And the joy that you just described, and that seems so far off, that God will just strengthen their hearts and that the joy that you shared will, will be instilled in them for the future. Will you pray for us? Absolutely.
1: Jesus, we love you. We love you. You are worthy of it all, worthy to take the scroll and to open it. You are our Redeemer. You are our Comforter. We just love you. Jesus, I pray for someone who is listening and they are discouraged right now, and they are weary and they're tired, and they don't even feel like they have the energy to spend time with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're at work even in that fatigue and even in that depression or even in that darkness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that the beauty of abiding is that you love to be with us much more than we love to be with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that it's not just us striving, it's you pursuing us. So I pray, first of all, for those that are weary in the fight, practically, emotionally, or spiritually, that they would just have a little sense of joy that you are pursuing them and you want to be with them and you love them. And then, Jesus, also give us faith and hope that as we respond to your love, as we love you back, you will work in us sweetly and surely, even when it doesn't feel like it. And you will work through us sweetly and surely. And over time, we will reap a harvest if we do not lose heart. So I pray against the enemy who is discouraging. Maybe some are wanting to pack it up and go home. Maybe some are wanting to transfer. Maybe someone. Wondering if it's all worth it. Maybe some are concerned about their children's struggles. Holy Spirit, in your sweet and gentle way, just come in with your comfort and come in with your love and come in with your presence and give hope that one day there will be great joy over our families, over our ministries, over our people groups, over our nations. To your great glory, we love you, Jesus. We're thankful. Pray these things in your name. Amen
0: well i knew you would not be disappointed with the time that we had with dick to sit down and listen some leadership lessons he's learned discipling people, investing in the life of people, just some practical information and insight. Sometimes when Dick has shared in the past, people have kind of contorted or changed or what he said. And I think it's very good just to see and hear his heart. And as I said, he loves Jesus and he loves others. And he understands that we go through different seasons of life and different times in our life. And he understands that. And I think he gave, you heard that come out in his heart. You heard that come out as he shared. He just wants people to passionately follow Jesus. And he shares the way that he has found that to work and he encourages us too. And I have nothing but respect for Dick and thankful for him. I'm thankful for who he is and I'm thankful for his love for Jesus and the love to make Jesus known. I also thought it was interesting as he shared about leadership and leading different generations, how that he's learned when he's leading people that are older than him, that he asks a lot more questions than he does give answers or give orders or give commands. I thought that was very valuable for us as we lead teams and we lead on different levels to be sensitive to that, to be respectful of that and to be caring and to learn and grow and to understand. And so I thought that was super valuable in our time with Dick. And so thank you, Dick, for taking your time out. Thank you for taking your time to invest in us. And thank you for your transparency. Thank you for your honesty. And it was a broad ranging conversation with him, but I thought it was valuable. And I think it was points that we all could take and apply in our everyday life. And as I shared before, that's what I want from a podcast is I want to take what can I use from this podcast? How can I put it in my life and uh, put into the key actions each and every day? So thanks again, Dick. We appreciate you. Just want to take a moment out once again to thank our sponsors, agwmafrica.org for an increasingly and africa 50 countries 257 training centers 404 missionaries and 79,106 indigenous churches discover what you can do and how you can be engaged at agwmafrica.org agwmafrica.org and by appalachian spring dermatology bringing new life to your skin learn more about the medical cosmetic and skin cancer screenings and treatments at appalachian spring dermatology and sign up for dr rosenberg Burgers blog at wvderm.com, wvderm.com, and by Central Assembly of God and Pastor Doug Seaman in Cumberland, Maryland, caring for each person, connecting each story, and celebrating each miracle. The next episode, we will have the opportunity to sit down, for a very interesting interview with Ann Deaton, and she's going to share about some of the work she does in team building and team approach and some tools that she's developed, some books that she's written, and I think you'll find it valuable for you on your team, wherever you're leading at. She talks about some vulnerability, the necessity for that, and she's developed some tools to work within that. I think you'll value her insight and her perspective. She's a specialist in neuroscience, and so she brings that insight into the conversation very valuable time with her and I think you won't want to miss it. Until then, providing clarity and life and mission, the Clarity Podcast.